again, good morning, everybody. Um, and for anybody who may be tuning in on Facebook Live, hello, my name is Patrick Cherry, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the World Church. And we are in the middle of our series, When Worlds Collide, which is taking a look at the first just few chapters of the book of Revelation. We're not going to tackle the whole book right now, but we're looking at the first few because uh, there's some very instructive messages there to seven, seven different churches. So each week we've been studying one of those seven churches in that particular message. And this week we find ourselves in Thyatira uh, discussing false idols. Uh, just a quick reminder for anybody who maybe hasn't been following along, uh, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, is really a, a revelation message, a revealing message that was given to the Apostle John uh, when he was on the prison island of Patmos. Uh, he was put there because he refused to worship the Caesar at the time, uh, Emperor Domitian, uh, and he was put there uh, for refusing to do that, and then in the midst of all that turmoil, he receives this amazing, troubling, yet hopeful revelation of Jesus right there in the midst, and then he takes it all down, and that's how we get the message. And as we discussed in the past, Revelation is arguably one of the most debated books in the entire Bible. Uh, it's really hard when you're talking about prophecy, prophecy, especially if the prophecy has not yet occurred. Prophecy always makes more sense after the fact. You know, hindsight is 2020. But Revelation is the one where speaking of the end of days and end of times, and uh, doesn't seem like we're there yet. Maybe we're in the midst of it, maybe we're not. That's a lot of the debate. But we're not going to be getting into all of that right now. We have these messages that can be really instructive to us today. But before we go any further, let's go to God and seek the uh, Holy Spirit's guidance as we study His Word. Let's pray. Wonderful God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather and worship in this place to dig a little deeper into your Word and look at this book of Revelation, this one massive, revealing, troubling, yet hopeful message that you gave to the Apostle John that he passes on to us. Lord, we need your guidance as we decipher its meaning for us today, for you still speak through Scripture to us today. So we pray that you would silence any voice in us but your own, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear your message. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, that they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our house, remain upon our hearts for our In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints said, Amen. Amen. So out of the seven messages that we are discussing throughout the series and Revelation to these seven different churches, Thyatira is probably one of the most difficult ones to interpret. Why? It's simply put this way. We know very little information archaeologically uh, about the city of Thyatira. You know, we can go to the old place of Ephesus. We, we've discussed where some of the other cities were, but Thyatira is one we just don't know as much about. We have very little archaeological evidence to help paint the picture of what life was like in that day and age, in that particular city. We can compare it to some of the other cities because they were around the same time, and we can learn it's still a part of the Roman Empire, so there are similarities there, but some of the nuances of that place are a little harder for us to say. But, even knowing that, that does not mean we can't glean anything from this message. 
So we want to be careful about that. We have to be careful how we interpret. But there's still so much meat for us to chew on there uh, in this message. But let's discuss what we do know about five tires. Because there are a lot of things we do know about five tires. For instance, does anybody know the patron god of five Anybody know? Don't have any ancient historians in the room? You got it. Ellie got it. Apollo. Did you just Google it? Is that what you did? Oh, you're, you've been doing your research, Ellie. Ellie comes with her research. That's right. Apollo was a patron god, or known by some as Theramus, I think. I'm probably I'm butchering the pronunciation, so don't. That's where you get the name Thyatira, is actually from that name. So it was, it was the god Apollo, or also known as Helios. And so does anybody remember who Apollo, or Helios, was the god of? Anybody know? The sun. That's right. So there he is. We've shown some images from uh, pictures to uh, statues beforehand and he, was, he would have a flaming chariot uh, drawn by horses, and he was, he was the sun god, so to speak. And he was, he was the divine guardian of Thyatira. So we know that. We know because usually cities had their patron god. We also know that Thyatira, just like all the major cities in the empire, participated in emperor worship. I mean, otherwise, you would have been cast out. So they, they worship the emperor just like any other city. But here's the difference a little bit. The Romans believed that the emperor was an incarnation of Apollo, a son of Zeus, an incarnation of Apollo. So that's why they worship the emperors. They believed it was an incarnation of Apollo. And so that's interesting information. That Thyatira, we also know, was a commercial center. A lot of roads came into the city, and so it was a commercial center. A lot of important goods uh, came out of there, going to all the different cities in the empire. And trade guilds were extremely important and prominent in the city of Thyatira. So trade guilds, anything from wool workers to linen workers to makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers... Bronzesmiths, shoemakers, everything was represented by all these different trade fields, which meant no one could possibly make it financially in their culture unless you were linked to one of these trade fields. They had the power. That's important for us to note because a large number, uh, because of the large number of these trade fields, trade fields, they had a great deal of influence on the life anybody who planned to make any sort of living in their culture. We know that information. And why is that important for us to know? If you were a believer of the church at the time, and you're making a living, then you had to participate in these trade guilds. But these trade guilds were not the best of places. There was idol worship that would happen. They would begin each each gathering of the guild, usually with a sacrifice. And they would end with a sacrifice. And what would happen in between there? 
They would eat the food that was sacrificed. If you remember, we discussed the eating of sacrificed food to idols in past weeks and how that was not uh, a neutral act for a believer to partake. And then it also mentions, just like we discussed last week, the sexual immorality pattern. It was pervasive in their culture. And so to participate in these guilds was to be upfront and participating in these different acts. And so it led to a difficult decision for Christians at the time. It's easy to say, well, then just abstain when your living is not built upon you making money from your trade. So did you abstain and risk financial ruin, ruin and not being able to make it? Not being able to put food on the table for your family? Or did you participate? But if you participated in all of these different acts, how do you stay loyal to Jesus Christ in the midst of that? This little bit of information helps us to interpret the warning that we receive in verse 20. In verse 20, we're told, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So let's look at this first part. This woman, that woman named Jezebel. Have you ever heard that derogatory term used? Yeah, that woman is a Jezebel. Ever, ever heard that? Well, there's some interpretation that goes on here. Could there have been a woman with the name of Jezebel? Yes, there could have been. It could be referring to a specific woman, but more likely, it was not speaking of one particular woman. It was speaking of several individuals who were acting like him. To understand that, we have to understand the Old Testament story of Jezebel. Who was Jezebel? Anybody remember? Who was Jezebel? King Ahab's wife. That's right. And she was the daughter of a king, of, of a territory that was hostile to Israel. You know, marriages at that time had diplomatic ties. And so usually if you wanted to, to create peace between nations, you'd marry off. You know, one king would marry off the daughter to the other king, or his son, or whatever that would be, so that they're bound in marriage and then they wouldn't fight, theoretically. Still, it tended to happen. But what happened is Jezebel was a staunch pagan. And she worshipped Baal, or you may even hear pronounced Baal. It could be pronounced either way. Uh, but she worshipped this, this other god, this other deity uh, that uh, was the god of like, fertility and nature and all these sorts of things. And what she did, being married to Ahab, who was the king of the Israelites at that time, is that she started swaying him from the one true God. And the way she did it is it was more of a pluralistic view. And she would say, well, you know, that's great. You can worship your God. We can worship the God over here, too. Well, wouldn't we be better covered if we, we worship everybody? And so then, think, you know, temples started springing up. She even had about 850 prophets of Baal go out across the entire kingdom to spread the good news of Baal, swaying the people from the one true God. She really led with this kind of both-and approach to faith. Do you think a both-and attitude 
for God and other gods and ideologies is jives with the teaching of our Holy Scriptures. Does our God say, you know, it's okay if you want to go worship some other people. That's okay, as long as you worship me too. Does, does that work? Does that sound like our God at all? Because what does sound like our God? You shall have no other gods before me. That's Old Testament right there. That's right in the beginning. That's You shall have no other gods before me. In fact, we know through the scriptures that there really are no other gods. This is the one true God. But you shall have no other god before me. The Bible seems pretty clear that a both-and approach is not appropriate. It's an either-or. You worship me, or you worship no one else. Jesus warns us in the Gospel of Matthew that no one can serve two masters. One person can only serve one master. You can only serve one or the other. You cannot serve both. They do not coexist. Can you understand how this slight tweak from this both-and approach, or the either-or to the both-and approach, how that might be disastrous to a people seeking to be faithful to the one true God? Can you think of any modern-day problems that we face today that are similar? Do we see a both-and approach happening all over? Absolutely. We see it as people have a, I, I call it a cafeteria faith. That you, you go into the buffet and you just pick, oh, I like this, I'll take this from this religion and this. And then we build our own sense of religion. And so there's all these hybrids of other religions out there. Just, well, I'm just going to pick this off of the buffet and create my own. Well, if anybody's ever been a buffet, to a buffet that has a wide variety of food, I mean, it looks really good at first. Have you ever noticed, well, I'm going to take this, I'm going to have pizza, and I'm going to have spaghetti, and I'm going to have lobster, and I mean, you have all these things, and then you get back, and after you eat, you just start to feel really sick, because you have things that really don't jive well together. <laughs> well, it kind of happens in our faith. These things don't jive well together. We live in this culture where we, we hear statements of there are, there are many paths to God, but they all lead to God. We're all just taking different path, or actually more likely today, the path looks a little bit more like this. Well, we'll just go this way and that way, but you know, still, even though your path may lead you over this way, you're still all getting to the same God. But is that the truth? Do all paths lead to God? And where in our Holy Scripture does it say that? That all paths lead to the same God? Sure, there are similarities in our paths, but does that really mean that we're climbing the same mountain? You know that a lot of mountains do look similar. A lot of paths look similar. They, they bear similar characteristics, but that does not mean that you're climbing the same mountain. And so, yes, there are many different paths, but they lead to very different peaks. We are not climbing the same mountain. We're climbing different mountains. And if each of those peaks is God. And that's a different God. That's a different person that we're worshiping. Jesus is very clear when he tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
He doesn't say that I'm any way. I'm one way to get there. Because if Jesus went through everything he went through so that we could have a connection, a way to God, and there were other paths, why go through the suffering? Why even die if you didn't have to? Because there's other ways. We have to be careful with this both-hand approach. Our modern-day mixing of religious ideals can muddy the waters and make us venture into this really dangerous territory where we start to water down our own belief, our own understanding, our own discipleship, our own devotion to the one true God who does want to seek and save all. And now here, this is a disclaimer. This is not a reason for any of us to abuse people of other things. I want to be very clear about that. We may have a difference of belief. And we may believe that someone else is wrong, but that does not give us the right to abuse, demean, or to put down and disrespect somebody of another faith. In fact, there are things that we can learn about other faiths that can enhance our own. Like, I admire the devotion of some other faiths that I often don't see in our American Christian faith. We tend to lack a lot of devotion in a lot of our struggles. But that doesn't mean that they are right. We have to be careful of which mountain we're climbing and if we're seeking to live this both-and approach. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor during the time of the Third Reich, said the human heart has the capacity for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. There's only true, there's only room for one. So I ask this question, can we be, truly be committed followers if we're not truly committed? Can someone have a strong marriage if they're constantly in another relationship or having an affair? Is that a faithful marriage if one is seeking others, or both? A faithful marriage is two people. It's not venturing out to go see other people. But let's be fair that even in instances of affairs, it doesn't just happen. It's a slow fade. There's things that lead to that. It's little decisions that seem pretty innocuous at first, but then they get more and more brazen. Jesus has really good things to say about this church of Thyatira. He said, I know, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. I mean, these are great words. But Jesus also knows that that's not where they ended. On the surface, everything appears to be fine, but behind the scenes, on the battlefield of the heart, in the war of the mind, God is losing ground, not because God lacks power, but because his people lack conviction and devotion. Maybe you too are doing the right things. You're here at church, or you're tuning in online, virtually. Doing a good thing. You practice service projects. You read your Bible every once in a while. You pray before every meal. And the list can go on and on and on and on of the good things that we do. 
But is Jesus at the center of everything you do? Is Jesus at the center of your life? Why we do things also matters. Our motivation matters. When you look how you spend your time, when you consider how you spend your money, when you ponder how you utilize your gifts and when you know the things that break your heart, do all these signs point to God or do they point to another God? And as we discussed in the past, our false idols may not be a wooden figure up on the mantle. Your idol may not be a God fashioned of wood or any precious is your God made of accolades and palaces? Is your idol, your God, constructed of things, people, and acts that bring you pleasure? Is the God of your life built out of new cars, the latest technology, a bigger house, a fancier lifestyle, nicer decor? The God is anything that we take out of proper priority and put before Jesus. A God is a false idol is anything that we take out of proper priority and put before Jesus. So even really good things can become our idols as well. Is your hobby an idol? Is your spouse or your love interest an idol? Are your children an idol? Are you putting them before Jesus? Are you more concerned with your children's development, offering them the best opportunities, giving them everything that you were never able to have before the coming kingdom of God? Our priorities matter. Even really good things that belong in our priority list can become idols. We must take an honest account of our motivations and our motivating factors in our life. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing if there is no room for the best thing. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing if there is no room for the best thing. And what is the best thing? Who is the best thing? Come on, give your church answer. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the best thing. He's the only thing. And if he's not at the center, then everything else is out of whack. All these good things aren't good. If they're out of priority, if Jesus is not the top priority, everything falls apart. We must take honest account of our own lives. But let's be honest. We don't, we don't only fill our lives with good things, too. There are plenty of things we do, know, and feel that are not good. So we must take, we must come clean and be honest as we seek forgiveness and seek God's mercy. Because even if we know verse 21, after talking about Jezebel, you know, Jesus tells them that I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I mean, this, this Jezebel, this woman who was doing all of these horrible things, was given time to repent. In fact, that's a beautiful message of Revelation. We see this horrible acts and things that happen in Revelation to those who do not come to God, but the fact of the matter is, we are given time to repent. 
We are given so much time to turn our lives around. We, we aren't just condemned after one choice. God says, okay, here's my mercy, come. Because when you come to God, it doesn't matter if you sin once or 50 million times, His grace is sufficient. God gives us time. But we also must be clear that we don't have all time in the world to repent. So every moment is a good time to repent and turn to Jesus. Jesus gave Jezebel time. His grace is sufficient. But let's be fair. Following Jesus, truly following Jesus with great devotion is not easy, is it? It may be an easy choice to make at first, but it's not easy to live that life because everything isn't roses and peaches and all nice things when you come and follow Jesus. Your, your life doesn't suddenly get easier, does it? My life certainly hasn't become easier. In some ways, it's become more difficult to be a follower of Jesus. It can be really challenging, especially when we live in a land of idols that want to grab your attention. It's hard to live a satisfied life in what God has given you when the Joneses have everything. They have the nicer car, and it really does seem nice because, you know, it has Bluetooth, it has a sunroof, it has automatic door. In fact, it can park itself. It can parallel park itself. Come on, who doesn't want a car that can park itself? Because who in today's age can even parallel park anymore? Not many people. It's really tough in the land of idols. But Jesus does offer a remedy. But to the rest of you, in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have before I come. Hold fast. How do we hold fast? How do we hold fast? Daniel Johnson illustrates the story by telling uh, a story of a man that he pastored in the church in Manila. He said this, this man was a businessman and spent a lot of his time traveling to all the major cities in that area from Hong Kong to Tokyo to Bangkok. And in these cities, in these hotels, the hospitality services, in quotes, were very popular. And a lot of businessmen utilized their services. And so it was very tempting. In fact, it was just thrust in your face. It was very commonplace. It was very appropriate for these areas. Leading many businessmen to be unfaithful in their marriage. And in one conversation, Johnson discussed with his man, he said, well, how do you stay faithful in those circumstances? And he shared that the way he stayed faithful is that he carried around with him a framed picture of his wife and his children. And every night, he would place it on his, or every time he got into a new room, he placed it on his nightstand. And any time he was tempted, he would look at those pictures and he'd say, I belong to her. I belong to them. So Johnson goes on to suggest that perhaps a picture of Jesus is exactly what we need to stay focused. Now this may not be that you carry around an actual picture of Jesus. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you have flat Jesus that we see that people carry around and take pictures with. If that's what to remind you, what he suggests 
that in our minds and in our hearts we carry the picture of Jesus. In fact, we are given such a picture at the beginning when Jesus introduces himself to the church of Thyatira. He says to Daniel in the church of Thyatira, right, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What's the picture here? The Son of God, especially in a, in a, in a city that worshipped Apollo and worshipped the Caesar of the time as the Son of the Most High God, Zeus. Jesus is the one true Son of God. And to know Jesus is to know God. He has eyes like flame of fire. This image can be terrifying, but it can also be comforting. It terrifies because his eyes are bright and radiant, and they can beam like a searchlight to the darkness, and that's not always welcome when you're living in the darkness. Have you ever had a light shine in your face when your eyes are in night vision mode? How blinding it is when you get up in the middle of the night. I was up at four in the morning with our four-year-old, who was complaining of a tummy ache. And so I got up with him, and when he walked into the bathroom, it turned out, oh, I thought I was going to pass out. Oh, no, I want that light. So it can be uncomfortable. But this image is also comforting because that penetrating gaze also cleanses us. It's a God who sees through all the fluff to see who we truly are. How many people know you for who you truly are? Who know even the darkest corners of your heart? The stuff that you don't even share with a spouse or a closest friend. His feet were like bronze, or like burnished bronze. They are strong and firm foundation. He is not moved. We go on to verse 23, and it says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, to your deeds. Jesus is saying that he respects our free will, our choices, that he honors the decisions we make. There are consequences to decisions we make. Just like in our own country, we have free will, but it doesn't mean that our free speech, but it doesn't mean that we're free from the consequences of things that we might say that might anger someone. In the sixth, he makes promises. He makes promises in verse 26, starts, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations, and who will rule them with a rod of iron, with earthen pots of broken in pieces, even as myself I have received authority from my Father. I will give you authority over nations. The king of all is saying, Stick with me, I'll even give you authority over the nations, right by my side. It's a pretty astonishing promise, isn't it? I'm going to give you a place of promise, even though you are nothing. I'm going to give you a place of promise. Because of me, you are really something. You are my child. You are my creation. And I love you. And in 28, he gives us the second promise. And I will give him the morning star. This is a beautiful promise. What is the morning star? The morning star usually appears at the darkest time of night, usually around 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And it usually emerges at a point when the night is so is, is, is getting as dark as it's going to get. And when it appears, there's no sign of dawn yet. But when it appears, 
very faint and small at first, you know that night cannot withstand dawn, and the dawn is coming. Jesus is saying, I am hope. I am your hope. Friends, in the land of false idols, we have to cling to our one true hope. These are beautiful promises to those who hold fast. When tempted, look to that picture of Jesus. What are the attributes of God that bring you comfort, that bring you hope, that give you courage? Hold fast to that. Let us cling to Jesus' mercy so that we can withstand all. Let us go to God.